Again, good morning. If you've just joined us, welcome to the live stream of Genesis Gathering. And for those of you that are in the congregation here, it's great to have you with us this morning as well. Um, we started a new series last week called Hell No. And today's message title is If Hell, and when I use that word, I'm talking about eternal, a, a future destiny, a place, a location of eternal conscious torment. If that's real, then it depends almost entirely on this. And we're going to discuss what this is. This series of messages will be pulling from the work of some of history's as well as present day's greatest theologians, scholars, and writers, including the writings of the Patristic Fathers, such as Clement, Origen, Ignatius, Gregory of Nicaea, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, English theologian N.T. Wright, and American theologian and pastors Gregory Boyd and Brian Zahn. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the work of Brad Jerzak, Canadian author, speaker, and pastor, and teacher, for his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, upon which this series is based I'll be receiving questions at, towards the close of my comments today and my time of sharing, so be thinking about that. If you have questions about either the content that I share or just about the subject in general that come up to your mind, be sure to engage with us. You can do that by typing it into the chat window on your device where you're watching this live stream, or you can text it. Those of you in the congregation here can text us at 720-878-3323. I want to start right off by addressing this topic this morning. So if there is a future, a destiny, a place called hell, eternal conscious torment, that is, that idea of hell. Because see, we, we believe in hell. We know there's a hell. There is a hell. We don't believe it's a place of eternal conscious torment. I don't personally, but if it is then its reality is based almost entirely on this particular view of God and on this theory of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. You know, as I prepared to share this message with you today, there's sort of an inner tension in my own mind and emotions about things having to do with the subject of hell. Because on, in one view, I see God as almighty, he's all-powerful, he sits on a throne in his grandeur, light beams flow from his eyes and his face, his, his hair is all white, everything quakes in his presence, and he requires us to repent of immoral behaviors before we can enter his presence. So that's one view of God to which we come in awe and fear and but there's also another view of God, that God is humble, he's beautiful, he's caring, he's inviting, he invites all to come into fellowship with him at the table of provision. He's laughing, he's gentle, he has a wonderful smile. He asks you, how was your day? Has it been going like you expected? How might I make it better? How might I be involved with my love and my peace? Now, see, that also is a view of God 
that I personally am pressing into. I want to know more about that God. But my upbringing as a young Baptist boy was not about that relationship with God. At the close of every sermon, there was an altar call to repent of moral behavior that was opposing God, sin, and come to the altar and be sure that Jesus was my Lord and Savior and that I was living a holy life. That was my upbringing as a Baptist boy. My dad made me watch the Billy Graham crusade that would be on television annually. I had to watch it. Everything else went off on the television. He tuned to that channel, and he made us sit in front of the television and watch Billy Graham's crusade. And, of course, Billy Graham is infamous for, or excuse me, famous for offering an altar call at the end of his crusade meetings every night. And and some of these crusades were five, six, seven nights. They went a whole week, and we had to watch every night. Then there was the book series. When I was 11 years old, you might identify with this, there was a book series called The Late Great Planet Earth. Did anybody identify with that? Now, there's a book series that could scare the hell out of you. I I mean, that's what it was designed to do, to teach you about hell and the afterlife and to make sure that you were going to go there If you didn't do the right things, change your behavior, accept Jesus as your Savior, so on. And then there was a movie series called Left Behind. Oh, there's a nice subject. So if you don't live right, if you don't do it the way that this church or this group or this, you know, the Bible, reportedly the Bible teaches it, then you're going to get left behind when this rapture comes to rescue and to take people off of the planet who are really Christians and who have done it the right way. And it, too, was designed to scare the hell out of people. I remember using it. It had several versions or several different movies in the series. And uh, as a young teenage boy who had opportunities to share this movie in certain settings with people, we'd get a group together, we'd show the movie, and, and, and at the end of the movie, we'd make an altar call to turn from your ways, to repent, to accept Jesus as your Savior so that you could go to heaven. And literally, it was dependent upon coercion, scaring the hell out of people so that they would turn to Jesus. That was my upbringing. And and then, as a young teenager, I began to attend a, a charismatic church here in town, which happened to be all charismatic churches are not, many charismatic churches are not, but this charismatic church was very abusive. It, was, it had a fear-based system of psychological control, It had corrupt and unbiblical obedience to leaders in leadership and inordinate teaching on holiness which warned the, quote, unbeliever or denier of eternal separation from God, judgment, and fire. Now, this foundation above that I've just spoken about was all steeped in Old Testament Aaronic priesthood and a system of sacrifices that we find there in order to satisfy a wrathful God who was angry and who basically the the base message was, I'm holy, therefore you be holy and don't sin. So a measure of perfection was required. 
Now, there is also a second in companionship with, as a partner book to the one I've already recommended from Brad Jerzak, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, I'm recommending this book. We'll have a picture of it here. Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Now, if you listened to last week's sermon, you know that there was a great sermon by Jonathan Edwards preached in the uh, late 1800s that is the de facto standard sermon on the subject of hell. All Bible students have learned it. It's taught in Bible colleges. It's crazy and wildly popular, and it's full of judgment and the wrath of God. Well, Brian Zahn, the author of this book that I'm recommending to you, wrote this book as a response to that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. I encourage you to get that. Now, let's consider a couple of scriptures that would certainly imply that God is a wrathful, judgmental God like the one that I grew up learning about. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 24, and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children will be fatherless. There's an encouraging scripture. How about this one? Psalm chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not, if he, the wicked, does not turn back, God will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of like one of those movies where somebody walks in, you know, there's, uh, you, you have uh, somebody who's been captured, you know, and, and they're interrogating this individual, and then all of a sudden the heavy walks in, right? And he sets down on a table uh, a, a, a cloth bag or something, and he unfolds it. And there's all these different instruments of torture, all right, that the heavy is going to carry out to exact from you your cooperation. It's almost as if that's the creature here that we're talking about. He has instruments of death prepared to exact from you your obedience. This is the God I grew up with. This is the God I learned about. This is the God that I used to worship. I have a couple of questions for you this morning. And again, taken from Brian's book, he did a marvelous job with this subject about the wrath of God, the angry God. And he poses these questions. First one, did God command Joshua, excuse me, did God tell Abraham to kill his son? How many of you remember the story, right? Abraham, take your son, go sacrifice him. Did God tell Abram to do that? That's a rhetorical question. Yes, he did. <laughs> okay. But we know that a lamb was provided that was caught in a thicket, and, and so it worked out, and Abraham didn't have to kill his son. But God did tell him to go kill his son. Right? Next question. Did God command Joshua, king, <clears throat> king of Saul, and the Israelites to kill children as part of an ethnic cleansing of Canaan? Ooh, it's getting down there deep into our theology of God, isn't it? And the rhetorical question would be, yeah, that's in the Bible. God commanded Joshua and the King, King Saul and the Israelites often to kill children as part of the ethnic cleansing of, of Canaan. Next question. And it's a straightforward one now. 
Does God change? Now, the majority of what we have learned as Christians about God's character is that he is immutable. He does not change, right? Well, so if God commanded that back then, does he command it today? See, there's an uneasiness in the room. There's an uneasiness right now in your mind as we think about these questions about God and his character. Here's the next question. Brace yourself. Since God doesn't change and since you have already acknowledged that in times past God has sanctioned the killing of children as part of a genocidal program of conquest, is it then possible that God would require you to kill children? Oh, what is this, some kind of game you're playing with us, Pastor Jeff? No, not at all. Just questions. You said God is immutable. It's part of our foundational theology about God. You answered yes to the first two questions that God did ask this of Abram to kill his son, to sacrifice his son. God did command that whole groups of people be killed and put to death, including the children and the women, all right? Well, if he's immutable, could he command you to do that today? It's hard, isn't it? Everything within you says, well, no, God wouldn't command that. Well, he doesn't change, right? Something's got to give here. Last question for you. If God told you to kill a child, would you do it? How come? See, there's something innate within us that says that's not God. And yet, when we read our Bibles, our takeaway from passages that are difficult like that are, God did that. Let me read two other scriptures now. I read the first two, Psalms, and the one from Exodus that certainly implied that God is a God of wrath. He will kill even women and children. Listen to this. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Psalm 40 and verse 6, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Wow, there's a tension here, isn't there? There's conflict, there's contradiction in the Bible, it would certainly seem. I love Brian's approach to this in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And so I could not improve upon Brian's comments. I'm going to quote him at length here. I'll have it on the screen. Please bear with me, but read along. The Old Testament is a journey of discovery. The Bible itself is on a quest to discover the Word of God. Now, you've heard us comment on what the Word of God is. The Word of God is not the Bible. The Word of God is Jesus. We call the Bible the Word of God, but the Word of God is actually Jesus. So, again, the Bible itself is on a quest to discover the Word of God. What we find in the Old Testament is a progression of revelation, the Old Testament begins with a primitive assumption that God requires ritual sacrifice, but eventually moves away from that position. 
We simply can't make Moses and Hosea agree perfectly. If we want to just pluck a verse here and there to proof text something, the Old Testament gives us many and often contradictory options. There are plenty of angry God texts in the Old Testament. But we also find Jeremiah's tender-hearted father longing for sinful Ephraim. In the Old Testament, God is portrayed as both, quick to anger and slow to anger. But it's Jesus who settles the dispute. One of the main challenges in talking about God is the problem of metaphor. We cannot talk about God without using metaphor. It's the only option we have when speaking of the supremely transcendent. But to literalize a metaphor is to create an idol and formulate an error. When you take things in the Bible that are meant to be a metaphor and you make them literal, you are headed for error. That doesn't make the Bible any less true. It is absolutely inspired. God breathed every word of it. But there are things that are psalms, there are things that are metaphors, there are things that are poems, there are things that are stories, there are things that are factual and historical. The Bible is rich and full of many things. And you cannot take everything, even written about God, to be something it is not. And that is meant to be understood as a metaphor. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of the story of Israel coming to know their God. It's a process. God doesn't evolve, but Israel's understanding of God obviously does. And that's what you're reading as you go move from Exodus into the prophets and you read about the stories of Israel and their travels and chronicles and first and second Samuel and, and then you move into the Psalms where you have both a picture of an angry God and a wrathful God but you have a picture of a loving God. It, it, Psalms really it tends to sort of collide and become contradictory most in Psalms where it, those, those two views of God collide and then by the time you get to the prophets in Jeremiah in particular we're seeing a very loving accepting wonderful God who's forgiving sin and saying, look, I am going to put my law in your heart and it's no longer going to be what you believe. It's going to be about me changing you from the inside out. We begin to read and see that in the prophet. Then we come to Hosea, one of the minor prophets, and he says, look, God never desired sacrifice. He didn't build that bloody system of judgment and legality. He never built it. He's a God of mercy. Well, how, how do you justify what Hosea says with what's written in Exodus? Because you have the story of a nation, Israel, who is progressively coming to know God, and it's being revealed. Now, careful here. <laughs> this next statement, I realize it's, it's one of those where you might tend to want to just disconnect and I'm inviting you not to and to stay with it, okay, through the whole message. I'm going to finish a, a, with a quote from Brian. The Bible is not the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is. Jesus is the only perfect theology. Perfect theology is not a system of theology. Perfect theology is a person. 
Perfect theology is not found in abstract thought. Perfect theology is found in the incarnation of God becoming a man in the person of Jesus. Perfect theology is found in the incarnation. Perfect theology is not a book. Perfect theology is the life that Jesus lived. What the Bible does infallibly and inerrantly is to point us to Jesus just like John the Baptist did. Isn't that great? Thank you, Brian Zahn. I told you that if a place, a future destiny of eternal conscious torment does exist, then it relies completely on this one thing. Now, I've started, I've started pulling back the curtain of what that thing is. Now we're going to dive in, all right? The punishing God. The punishing God. Hell relies on a view of God as a punishing God. Eternal conscious torment now, let me clarify. Not, not all views of hell are a view of a punishing God. And, and that's why I still embrace the reality of a hell as expounded on in the scripture. And we're going to, in, in message number four, we're going to get into all the detailed scriptures in the Bible about the subject of hell. There absolutely is a hell. But we're talking specifically about this future place of destiny called the eternal conscious torment. And it relies on a particular item or thing called the atonement theory. Atonement theory. Nobody has done a better job of laying those three theories out. There are three of them, three primary ones, than Jonathan Welton in his book, Understanding the Whole Bible. Now, watch, listen carefully. Simply defined, atonement means to bring two parties back into relationship with one another. Everybody, would you read it aloud? You at home, you watching this on live stream or after the fact next week, let's say it together. Simply defined, atonement means to bring two parties together or back into relationship with one another. When Christian theology refers to the atonement, it is referring to what happened at the cross. Let me give you a little picture here. You see this here? This is a view of the three atonement theories, all right? So number one, we have Christus Victor. Now, this was the atonement theory widely believed for the first 1,100 years of the Christian church. It's Latin for Christ the victor. And this theory says that Jesus came back to take authority over the earth creation and to restore man. Again, Christus Victor was the theory believed about atonement, the joining back of two parties, all right, for the first 1,100 years. Now, then, second, second biggest atonement theory. There are several, but these are the main three. Satisfaction theory. In AD, about A.D. 1100, a man named Anselm, who was the Bishop of Canterbury, came along, and he introduced the idea that human sin had dishonored God. 
that a wall now existed between man and God and that sin was the focus of atonement. Okay, so Anselm introduced that there was now a separation between God and man that had not been believed or preached for the first 1,100 years. But he said now, there is a separation. Your sin has dishonored God. You are now separate from God, and here's the deal. Atonement, or the rejoining uh, back into relationship, the bringing back of two parties into relationship with one another, is all about sin and how sin gets dealt with. Someone has to pay back the debt of sin because God is holy, God is angry, and God wants payment. He introduced those things. Not believed or taught for the first 1,100 years of the Christian church. The third primary theory of atonement is called penal substitution. I have another slide for you here that shows that one. Take a look at it. This theory of atonement was introduced in the 1500s. It was introduced by a preacher by the name of John Calvin. John also happened to be a lawyer. He not only taught that sin has dishonored God, but that sin deserved punishment. This changed everything about what happened at the cross and, of course, played right into the practice of substitutionary sacrifice as a remedy and payment for sin, which, of course, the Aaronic priesthood was believed to have practiced. That's not true. That's not the reason they were sacrificing, but that's what was believed. In fact, let me just tell you, the reason that the Aaronic priesthood was sacrificing was not to appease an angry God. They did it as a means of honoring God and thanking him for provision, number one. Number two, the sin offering that was offered. They would bring in a lamb. They would lay their hands. The priest was instructed to lay their hands on the lamb, pass on the sin of Israel to the lamb, and then they did not sacrifice the lamb. He didn't come under the knife. He wasn't murdered. They would take the lamb outside of the tent, and they'd release him out into the wilderness. Humans, John Calvin taught, deserve punishment due to their sin. And so God's posture towards us is separation, judgment, and wrath. Though we deserved punishment, here's what he taught. Again, he's a very legal mind. He's a lawyer as well as a preacher. Humans deserve punishment for their sin. And so God's posture towards us is one of judgment. So Jesus stepped in, God sent him, God laid on Jesus all of his wrath and his anger and his vengeance, and so Jesus took our place. So the focus of this view is a demand for justice. You seeing that? It's not relationship, it's a demand for justice. I require justice, and I'm angry. I'm a holy God, and you must be holy too. 
So the whole thing switched from Christus Victor, Christ came to restore man. Christ came to take authority back since it was given over to Satan in the garden by Adam and Eve who had it and possessed all of it. But they abdicated and they gave it to Satan. And so Christ came back to restore what God had given to Adam and Eve. That's Christus Victor. And it changes from that, one of victory and restoration and healing, to being a theory all about sin and punishment and a wrathful God who requires you to make payment. Well, we couldn't make payment, so all that was put on his son. His son uh, bore the wrath of an angry God and died on a cross and there was murdered by God. That's one way we could say that. Now, all of that's very interesting. And I have believed that for decades. I was taught that in Bible college. Now, here's the big difference between these views. And if you've heard nothing else I've said in the last 10 minutes, please, this one, all right, this point. This is the big difference between these three atonement theories. And it's the overwhelming influence on all of Western Christianity because our Eastern Christian brothers largely do not believe in penal substitution. They've never embraced it. It's a very American Western kind of thing, evangelical thing. Watch, here comes the slide. Is sin forgiven or is it punished? Let me ask you a question. Those of you that have a mortgage payment, there's only two ways in which you can deal with a mortgage payment. Either you pay it off or it gets forgiven. There aren't other ways. It's one or the other. One is to completely forgive it. You no longer owe it. Or you better come up with it. Now, since the 1100s, the emphasis switched from an earlier concept of forgiveness to the concept of punishment. Think of the prodigal son here for just a moment. How many of you remember the story that Jesus gave us in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, about a prodigal? A man had two sons. One of the sons, the younger of the two, said, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. I'm leaving. And so his father gave it to him. And the young, young boy left and he spent all that he had, his entire inheritance, on riotous living, the Bible says. Right? He wound up feeding slopped hogs in a pig pen on a farm. And he said, man, I had it better back at home. And so he returned home. And while he was still afar off in the field, making his way back to the house, his father saw him and ran to join him. Didn't even let him get to that. He ran to join him and hugged him. And you know how the story goes, right? He pulled out a list of moral behaviors and said, Son, you got to repent of this. And before you can come home, you got to clean up. And you're going to have to change your clothes. And you've got to stop living this way, right? No. <laughs> I, I'm being sarcastic. No, absolutely not. His father embraced him. He said, Let's put a ring on his finger. One of his most expensive rings he put on his finger. Then he clothed him with wonderful new clothing, and they threw a party for him. And not a single utterance about his moral failure, his lifestyle, what he needed to give up to get right with God, none of that. 
the father accepted him back and just forgave him. Now that's the story that Jesus tells regarding God's nature. And somehow that escaped John Calvin. Somehow that escaped being mentioned in the message by Jonathan Edwards in the 1800s, sinners in the hand of an angry God. See, Calvin made it all about a legal approach to understanding and relating to God. There's a courtroom. God is angry. He demands payment. Jesus steps in and pays the penalty. And herein is the direct connection between punishment and sin, an angry God. I told you at the very beginning of the message that I was going to tell you the one thing that sort of brings all of this around and connects it. If we're to believe in eternal conscious torment, it really all relies on one thing. God does not forgive sin. God punishes sin. And there's got to be a payment. Now, keep in mind, that was not believed or preached for the first 1,100 years of Christianity. It was introduced well later by evangelists in one of the key passages of Scripture that penal substitution, the third in that group of three atonement theories that I gave you this morning, one of the key contexts or one of the key passages that that's based on is Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus the suffering servant. Let's go there. This passage, like few others in all of Scripture, has been heavily manipulated and influenced by Calvinist thinking. Our best option for understanding what it actually says compared to what's been translated in many of our modern Bible translations is the Bible that Jesus used to use. Now understand, there was no Bible in Jesus' day. There were scriptures from the Hebrews and Hebrew writings. We'll call it the Old Testament, the prophets and Moses and the Psalms and so forth. He did have those in scrolls. Now, it's called the Septuagint LXX. This is what Jesus would have read. It was produced around 200 to 300 B.C. It was the standard Greek Bible of his day. I'm going to take that Bible translation and I'm going to compare it to a very well-known Bible translation that most of you have at home and have read, you may carry it, called the New International Version. Crazy popular, second only to the King James Version, which is still in wide, wide uh, circulation. Right, Isaiah chapter 53, let's go. Look first at verse 5. We're going to read it from the New International Version. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. No. Here's, here's what Jesus read in the Septuagint. Jesus took sin as a plague, okay? Watch. He became sick because of our sins. The pedagogy of our peace was upon him. With his bruises we ourselves are healed. Do you see the difference between he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, 
And what the Septuagint says, he became sick because of our sins. There's a world of difference. Now, let's drop down to verse 8. Here it is from the New International Version. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. But here's the way it reads from Young's literal translation. By the transgression of my people, he is plagued. See, the Hebrew Scriptures treat sin much more as a plague, a disease, an illness, not something moral that you should be punished for. Oh, what a difference. And notice the big difference between for and by here. Verse 8, New International Version, for the transgression of my people. But from, the, from Young's literal translation, by the transgression of my people. Big difference between for and by. He hung on that cross because of, not for. <laughs> oh my goodness, we'll unfold more of this as we keep going in the rest of our messages. Now, verse 10, and we'll stop with Isaiah 53. Verse 10 from Isaiah 53. Watch the crushing and the suffering here. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. I mean, it's just blatant. Now understand, that's the way these translators are translating Hebrew Scriptures. That's not what it says. That's how they're being influenced through Calvinist theology of the time. And that has continued into the Western evangelicalism. No, no, no. The Septuagint says it this way. And the Lord desires to purify him of the plague. You see... Disease and plague have to be healed. And that's much different than suffering and punishment being placed on Jesus by an angry God. Dear ones, I submit to you that this whole idea of anger and punishment and this legal system where God's exacting punishment and, and, and he wants a payment for sin, all of that stuff, has never entered God's mind. He's never thought that about you. He's never willed that for you, and he did not put that on Jesus. Now, I know the conclusion that some might be thinking right now about these ideas that I'm sharing. Well, so are you just saying sin doesn't have consequence? We can go out and sin. We can do anything we want because God just forgives it, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Sin has consequence. Biblical metaphor doesn't make the consequences of sin less real or painful. God's radical love and grace doesn't make us impervious to the consequence of sin. Brad Jerzak said this, quote, When we live against the grain of love, we suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering. This is the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Self-inflicted shards of suffering because of our willfulness, our unwillingness to embrace God's wonderful love. I want to show you the face of Jesus because already and throughout this message and the last, we've talked about how that Jesus is the interpretation of Scripture. 
Jesus is the theology of Scripture. Jesus is the Word of God. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who said, Light will shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What is the glory of God? How can you know God? Look at Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It is the only Son himself, God, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. You see, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time where God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known it, but now we do. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. John chapter 12, verse 45, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You're looking at the Father. And so while the Hebrew prophets often prophesied the day of the Lord of Yahweh will bring violent vengeance upon the people, Jesus never taught that. Jesus never taught the day of the Lord will bring vengeance and God's going to wipe you out if you don't believe the right things. Did Jesus call for divine vengeance on sinners? Never once. Help me, John 3.16. You see it on banners at football games even. Come on, you learned it in Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. We'll talk about the word perish and what that means because it does not mean eternal conscious torment, but will have a eternal life. Now, we stop there. What's the next verse? Verse 17. Somebody look it up, please. Say it out loud. I'll requote 16 while you're looking up John 3.17 right now on your devices real quick. Look it up. Show it to me, Jeff. You could actually post it on the screen if you wanted to be finger quick, but I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just saying, okay, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. Verse 17, and whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Yeah. What are you reading from? What translation? Okay. Yep. Stop. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not is condemned already. We make that into eternal conscious torment, but that does not say you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in him. It says internally you are condemned. You're going to live a life far beneath what God's will is for you. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly and not live in condemnation. All right, we're going to close with this passage. Look here. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31. I'll have it on the screen for you. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. 
Now, Hinnon is an equivalent idea of the term that Jesus used in the Greek, Gehenna. Hell's actually not found in Old Testament or New Testament by the word hell. It's either Hinnon in Hebrew or Gehenna in Greek. It was a valley outside the gates of Jerusalem. We'll talk more about this in message number four. Watch this. This people, they built their high places, which is in the valley of the son of Hanan, to burn their sons and daughters, sacrifice, which I did not command. I never commanded you to burn sons and daughters. I never commanded sacrifice. I've never commanded that you would kill whole people groups with ethnic cleansing. It never came into my heart. Watch this. Here's the message translation. A shocking perversion of all that I am and all I command. That's how that verse is rendered in the message. Here's how it's rendered in, um, not sure of this, the, the New King James. I'm not sure about that, but anyway. Which I never commanded, which never came into my mind. Right? Here it is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. A thing I did not command, I never entertained the thought. Imagine that. God has never entertained the thought of you burning in hell. He doesn't want your children to burn in hell. He's never purposed for you to burn in hell. Jesus did not take punishment so you wouldn't burn in hell. It's never entered his mind. Brian Zahn says this, and I quote, What the Bible does infallibly is point us to Jesus. The Bible itself is not the perfect picture of God, but it does point us to the one who is perfect. This is what Orthodox Christianity has always said. And likewise, Brian McLaren says this, with too many American Christian leaders echoing the angry, arrogant, vindictive, and violent rhetoric of our political culture, It's hard to imagine a book more relevant and needed than Brian's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. 